0: For now, our business lies in Romans chapter 8. In verse 17, uh, the Apostle Paul introduces a, a theme, a subject that will remain with him more or less through to the end of the chapter. And the subject is this, suffering. Not a pleasant subject. But a needful subject. Let me ask you, how do you cope with suffering? Take a moment, think about it. How do you cope, handle suffering? Come at it from a slightly different angle. You're sitting in your living room at home with a friend, a loved one who is suffering. What do you say to that individual? How do you minister to the Christian, to the believer as he, as she suffers? Sadly, I've, uh, I've heard it a lot. And I guess I'll confess it. I used to say it a lot years ago. That when it comes to uh, suffering, here's what people need to hear. Trust God and things will get better. Just trust God and things will get better. You know what I discovered uh, a while ago now? Things don't always get better. As a matter of fact, when it comes to suffering, very little ever gets better. The older I get, the worse it gets in terms of suffering And so this trite and almost insulting little phrase, piece of advice, just trust God and things will get better, has proved itself time and time again to be more than unsatisfactory when it comes to ministering to those who are suffering, struggling. Uh, What do you say? What do we say to the Christian who has lost a child in the earthquake in Nepal? Trust God and things will get better. What do we say to the Christian who has surrendered multiple internal organs to the surgeon's knife in an attempt to stem the cancer slowly eating away at his body? Trust God, and things will get better. What do we say to the Christian who feeds and dresses and bathes her once vibrant husband who no longer even remembers her name? Trust God, and things will get better. What do we say to the Christian who has suffered irreparable physical or mental trauma in an accident? Trust God and things will get better. What do we say to the Christian who has limited skills and limited qualifications and therefore very limited opportunities? Trust God and things will get better. What do we say to the Christian who raises her two children by herself while paying support to her deadbeat husband because she happens to make more than him? Trust God and things will get better. What do we say to the Christian in Syria who's afraid to open his shop on Monday morning, afraid to send his children to school? Why? Because a significant segment of the population actually believes they would be serving God by killing him. Trust God and things will get better. Do you realize how unsatisfactory that little ditty is? It's actually quite meaningless. And let me repeat it. It is insulting. Trust God and things will get better. Let me repeat the initial question. How do you cope with suffering? And what do we say to those who suffer? Paul introduces the theme in verse 17. And then he gives three biblical helps. Here they are. Number one, he gives us. He gives us the hope of glory. Verses 18 through 25. I'm not going to read this section again. Just look with me by way of reminder at the 18th verse where he says the following. For I consider... That the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Oh, the hope of future glory. As Christians, we are adopted children. As Christians, we belong to the family of God. As Christians, therefore, we are heirs. We are heirs of God. He is, he is ours And he will be ours in his fullness in a day yet future. As heirs, we also possess what? The world. We do so by right at this very moment. And we will enter into full position, a renewed world, a renovated world in a day yet future. And we are heirs in what sense? Of a renewed, renovated soul, body, perfected in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the hope of future glory. And this is the first help, concrete help, that Paul gives us in the midst of suffering. Secondly, he gives us the power of prayer. In verses 26 and 27, yes, the hope of glory, but right now, until then, as I struggle along, what do I have? I have the power of Of prayer, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Why are we weak? For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We don't understand why things happen to us. We don't understand how it's all going to work out. We don't understand how everything comes together. We don't understand how everything relates to God's ultimate plan for us in this world. We don't understand how things contribute to his glory. We're weak. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. But here's a great help. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit knows the will of God. And the Holy Spirit prays according to the will of God. And the Father who searches our hearts hears these Spirit-impelled groanings. And these groanings ascend to God as perfect prayers. Prayers that are in perfect accordance with His eternal will. And prayers that are ultimately for our eternal good. And now Paul gives us a third help. Concrete help in the midst of suffering, the sovereignty of God. The first was the hope of glory. The second was the power of prayer. And now the third is the sovereignty of God. Follow along as I pick it up in verse 28 and read as far as verse 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. glorified. Now I want to draw your attention. You've been staring at it for a little time now, haven't you? I want to draw your attention to the slide right there on the screen. It's the only one I have for you this morning. Having just heard me read those verses 28 through 30, you've heard each of those elements, haven't you? You've heard the word glorified, You heard the word justified, you heard the word called, the word predestined, the word foreknown, and this idea that we know right at the outset of verse 28. Here's what we're going to do, obviously beginning today and Lord willing for the next five Sundays. We are going to unpack these verses. We are going to do so backwards. Hence, I have the words backwards up here on the screen. We're going to start at the end of verse 30 and trace Paul's thought flow all the way back to the start of verse 28. Why? Because at the end of verse 28, he is reminded us what? That we know that God works all things together for for good. For those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. It raises a question. What's the question? What does it mean to be called according to his purpose? He answers that, he explains that in verses 29 and 30. So we need to understand verses 29 and 30 before we can make any sense of verse 28. And in verses 29 and 30, he has these five phrases, these five words. I want to start at the end and work our way forward, this culmination in foreknowledge. We're going to take one Sunday to look at each. Today we're going to look at the first, glorification. Next week, justification. The week after that, calling. Until we arrive finally back at verse 28. And we're able to make sense of this great health in the midst of suffering. That we know God works all things together for good. To those who love Him. To those who are called according to His purpose. So glorification today. But before we get to it, I want you to look at the five words in their entirety. And I want to force upon you a little grammar lesson. Force it upon you. I want you to notice, I beg of you to notice three things about these five verbs. Now, why am I doing this? Why put you through this? Because if we don't understand these three things, we can't interpret the verbs. You need to understand these three things to make sense of these words and therefore understand exactly what Paul is saying. And then having understood exactly what Paul is saying, being in a position to go back and put verse 28 on top of it all. Here's the first thing I want you to notice about these verbs. Here we go. They are all in the active voice. They are all in the active voice. The active voice, I eat the apple. The passive voice, the apple was eaten by me. You see the difference? In these verses, all the verbs are in the active voice. God foreknew. God predestined. God called. God justified. God glorified. Here's an obvious question. What did you do? Absolutely nothing. Now you're getting it, my friend. Now you're getting it. The verbs are all in the active voice. We are entering into the realm of God's work, not our work, not what we do. Yes, to be saved, we must repent and believe. But please understand this. Our faith and repentance, God does not respond to it. Our faith and repentance is the response to what God has already done. Our faith in, re- in salvation, God does not respond to us. In salvation, we respen- respond to God. In the first instance, it is what God is doing. Active voice. The second thing I want you to notice about these verbs is this. They are in the past tense. Staying with the apple. Present tense. I eat the apple. Future tense. I will eat the apple. Past tense. I eated the apple. Couldn't resist. It's a regular. I ate. Some of you are looking at me. Yeah, yeah, whatever. I eated the apple. I ate the apple. Past tense. All these verbs are in the past tense. God foreknew. God predestined. God called. God justified. God glorified. Why is that significant? It's significant for the following reason. We know God hasn't done all those things to all His people. He foreknew me. He predestined me. He called me. He justified me, but I'm not yet glorified. There's someone here this morning who might get saved this very day, someone tomorrow might get saved. Well, right now, from the vantage point of time, right now, well, God has foreknown that person. He's predestined that person, but he's not yet called. He's not yet justified. He is not yet (laughs) glorified. And yet all the verbs are in the past tense. Why? Because Paul is considering these acts of God from the vantage point of God's decree. What he has determined. What he has decreed. And from the vantage point of God's eternal decree, these things are in the past tense. Whether or not they've even happened. Why? Because they are an absolute certainty. They are going to happen. They're not up for debate. The verdict still isn't out. From the vantage point of God's decree, they're done. Fait accompli. Accomplished. In the eternal counsels of God. And now the third thing. You've been very good. The third thing I want you to notice about these verbs. They're in the active voice. They're in the past tense. They are transitive. Ooh. Transitive verbs. What is a transitive verb? Do they teach grammar anymore in school? I don't think so. It's one of the great losses of our society. But anyway, I won't go there. Here, I'm demonstrating why. You can't study the Bible without grammar. We need to know grammar to make sense of the word of God. Transitive verbs, intransitive verbs. A transitive verb requires an object. I eat, I sleep. It doesn't require an object. It makes sense if I say those things. But there are verbs that make no sense unless there is a direct object. The direct object receives the action of the verb. And so these five verbs all have a direct object. Those whom God foreknew. He predestined, those whom he predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified, what's Paul's point? God foreknew us, his people, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us, he glorified us, why is that so significant? For this reason, it is the same group of people throughout From the beginning to the end. Now, you take those three little things, grammar lessons. You apply them to these five words. And we begin to arrive at the gist of what Paul is emphasizing here. Let me sum it up in two statements. Here it is, statement number one. My security as a Christian is hidden in God's sovereignty. My security as a Christian is hidden in God's sovereignty. So many people today, Christians, professing Christians, want security and their own sovereignty. You can't have both. If you're sovereign, guess what, my friend? You can never be secure. Because if you think you professed in Jesus today, you might walk away from Jesus tomorrow if you're sovereign. Right? Right? If you want security as a Christian, it is found in only one place. Not your sovereignty. It is found in the sovereignty of God. This is wonderful, you see. As a Christian, someone, yes, I must repent and believe. There is something of a tension there, something of a mystery. I don't deny it. But as a Christian, someone who has repented of my sin and believed in the Lord Jesus, you see, I can now enter into these five words. I find myself where? Right after that word justified, right? I'm justified in the sight of God. He's forgiven me my sin and clothed me with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. I can look back and what do I see? I see therefore that God has called me. I see therefore that God predestined me. I see therefore that God foreknew me even before the foundation of the world. And then I can turn around and I can look ahead. And what do I see? Oh, not God might glorify me. I see God has already glorified me. It hasn't happened to me yet in actuality. But according to the eternal decree of God, it is already accomplished in the eternal counsels of his will. I look back, I look ahead, and what do I find? Absolute security. Why? Because my salvation does not depend on me. My salvation rests upon the absolute sovereignty of God. That's the first thing Paul is driving at here. The second thing he's driving at is this. My adversity as a Christian is hidden in God's sovereignty. Just as my security is hidden in the sovereignty of God, so too my adversity... Is hidden in the sovereignty of God. I realize. These five actions. Are like five links in an unbreakable chain. And because this chain is unbreakable. I see here God's eternal plan for me. From foreknowledge. All the way to glorification. And I have this absolute certainty, therefore, that God always has and always will. He holds me in the palm of his hand. I have, therefore, working back in the text, this absolute confidence that I am called according to God's purpose. Therefore, working backwards in the text, I know what? That God, therefore, works all things Together for my good. Everything in life, great and small, trivial, momentous, Seemingly insignificant or mind-blowing significance. Everything in life is subservient to the plan of God for me. This is his unalterable plan for his children. And this is Paul's third help in the midst of suffering. It means everything, everything, including suffering, is subservient. To God's plan for God's people. John Calvin summed it up as follows. In times of adversity. Believers comfort themselves with the knowledge. That they suffer nothing. They suffer nothing. Except. By God's ordinance. And command. For they are under his. Hand. Trust God, and things will get better. Meaningless drivel, my friend. As you suffer, you hold on to these three helps for all you are worth. And as you minister to that fellow brother, fellow sister in the Lord who is suffering, don't give them these silly little throwaway phrases that are so common within evangelicalism today. You point them to biblical theology, and you point them to these three great helps. The hope of glory. What is coming? The power of prayer right now and the sovereignty of God over all things. So this is where we're camping out. Arthur, you can take that slide away now. We're finished with it. This is where we're camping out. Obviously today for the next five Sundays, Lord willing, as we walk through, as we journey through these five verbs beginning at the end, these five links in an unbreakable chain beginning at the end working all the way back to foreknowledge. Then on the sixth and final Sunday, unpacking the significance of verse 28 and how it speaks into our daily experience as Christians. So we begin with glorification. We can be quick because Paul has already addressed the issue in this chapter. You go back with me, for example, all the way to verse 11. Look at what he says there. If the spirit of him, speaking of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. See, right now, your bodies are dead. Our bodies are dead, still under the curse. But the day is coming, a future resurrection, that the Holy Spirit, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. That is a reference to glorification. Move down in the chapter now, all the way to verse 17. Here Paul says, just breaking into the thought, if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also, there's the word, be glorified with him. He continues with this subject of glorification into verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Still with it in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Christians. In the the time in which they are glorified that day yet future. Look now at verse 21. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. One more instance, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. That is the culmination of our adoption. What's he's talking about? The redemption of our bodies. You see, these verses are saturated with this motif. See, this this is never far from the mind of the Apostle Paul. Yes, forgiveness of sin is a glorious reality and aspect of the gospel. Peace of conscience. Yes, another glorious reality belonging to those who are in Christ. But Paul always has an eye to the future. He always has an eye to our hope, our ultimate hope, glorification. And I want to summarize for you in three statements what is going to happen on that day. Just sum it up. In three phases, three truths, what it will mean to be glorified. Already happened according to the decree of God. It is an absolute certainty. We're just waiting for it. We're simply putting in time, so to speak. Waiting for that day. What's going to happen? Three things. And then I want to demonstrate for you very briefly how important this truth is. I want to impress upon you the significance of this great hope. And demonstrate for you in very simple terms how it shapes us and molds us in the present. But for now, here we go. Glorification. What's going to happen? Number one. We will see God. There you go. We will see God. Do we see him now? Yes, through the eyes of faith. We behold the effects of his glory, creation, redemption. But a day is coming when we will see him with the eyes of sense. And we will see something of his resplendent glory. Blessed, says the Lord Jesus, are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. Now, it creates a little problem for me. It creates a little problem for me because I'm mindful of what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, where he makes it very clear. God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see. It's impossible. God is spirit. God is invisible. And God is infinite. There is no proportion between a being who is invisible and infinite and a human eye and a human mind. Now you're thinking to yourself, hang on though. I remember some incidents in the Old Testament when people did see God. Moses saw God, didn't he? Joshua saw God. Gideon saw God. Manoah saw God. No, they didn't. They saw theophanies. What is a theophany? Theo, theos, God, phony, a revelation. They saw a revelation of God. They beheld a revelation of God's glory, veiled in a physical form. They did not see God. No one can. See God. It is an impossibility. So what is the Lord Jesus saying then? Blessed are the pure in heart, pure in spirit, for they shall see God. I think he's referring simply to this, that on the day of our glorification, we will see whom? We will see the Lord Jesus. And we will see the resplendent glory of God shining forth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What will that be like? You want to know what that will be like? Read Acts 9. As Paul is traveling on the way to Damascus. What happens? There's a bright, shining light all around him, and he falls prostrate to the ground as the Lord Jesus appears to him and speaks to him. You want to know what it'll be like? Go to Revelation chapter 1, where John was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and what does he, who does he behold? The Lord Jesus in his glory, and he falls to the earth like a dead man. We do catch glimpses of it in Scripture, that there is held out for us this great, Hope That the Lord Jesus, not as he walked on the face of this earth, but the Lord Jesus, as he is now glorified, we will behold him and we will see something of the fullness of the glory of God in Christ. We'll behold Christ, through whom the glory of God shall shine forth in its fullness to the soul. That's the first thing that's going to happen. We're going to see him. And it will be transformative. It will be transformative. It brings us to the second thing that's going to happen. In that day, God will make us spiritually glorious. Spiritually glorious. No need to turn there. I'm just going to read a verse quickly out of 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Again, God will make us spiritually glorious. He started the work already. It's called sanctification. He is renewing us in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul makes that clear in Colossians 3.10. He makes it clear in Ephesians 4.24. As a matter of fact, you put those two texts together and we discover what? That this image of God consists of three principal things. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. That God is renewing us in the image, the likeness of his Son. And we only see in part now. And the renewal is only in part now. And oh, how, 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 how pathetic it is in terms of what is coming. The fullness that awaits us when we behold the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And this sight is transformative whereby we are renewed and we are perfected spiritually, transformed spiritually, spiritually glorious. Whereby our knowledge of him will be full and final. And because it will be full and final. Our love for him will terminate in him. And because our love for him will terminate in him. Every last vestige of sin will be eradicated from the soul. Every thought, every impulse and every desire will find its fulfillment in Christ. Our love for him will burn so intensely that it will bring our hearts into perfect alignment with the will of God. God will make us spiritually glorious. And thirdly, God will make us physically glorious. Another text out of 1 Corinthians. No need to turn there. And speaking of chapter 15, verses 42 and 43. Where Paul pens the following. So it is. With the resurrection of the dead. And he makes a fourfold comparison. What is sown perishable. What is sown is perishable. What is raised. Is imperishable. God will make us physically glorious. Our bodies will be imperishable. Meaning what? they will be moved beyond the realm of any decay. He says something else. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. And so our bodies will be glorious. Meaning what? They will move beyond the realm of any imperfection. And how our bodies are plagued with imperfections at present. He says a third thing there in 1 Corinthians. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. Our glorified bodies will be strong beyond the realm of any weakness. And fourthly and finally, he says, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. By that, Paul does not mean That our glorified body will be immaterial or non-physical. That's not his point. His point is simply this. At present, what? The spirit is life because of righteousness. But the body is dead. Why? Because of sin. And so the body still belongs to the curse. And the body still decays and the body still dies. But that will not be the end. It will be raised glorious. There will be a spiritual body as opposed to a natural body, this temporal body right now. That means it will be different. And it means it will be more susceptible, more susceptible to, more inclined to what? The spiritual exercises of the body, of the mind, as they terminate upon whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. Our bodies will be imperishable. Our bodies will be glorious. Our bodies will be strong, and our bodies will be spiritual. God will make us physically glorious. We will see him. He will make us spiritually glorious. He will make us physically glorious. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who... Love him. He has glorified us. From the vantage point of his decree. It has happened. It is an absolute certainty. That this day is coming when we will behold our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We will see him as he is. And we will be as he is. As we are glorified spiritually and physically glorification. This is an extremely practical truth. This is a truth that we probably, in all likelihood, do not think about enough. I'm convinced that's part of the reason. You go back to Ephesians chapter 1, for example. You turn over there and there we have a a marvelous prayer uttered by the Apostle Paul. And it's fascinating to look at the prayers of Paul and what he asks for. his, His actual petitions. And at times, how detached we are from what occupies his thoughts and what consumes his desires. There he prays in Ephesians 1, more or less around verse 18, that God would open the eyes of our understanding, give us spiritual understanding. Why? That we may know what is the hope of our calling and that we may know what is God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul is praying for Christians. He's praying for what? That we might get it. That the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. That the eyes of our hearts might be illuminated. That we might be able to raise ourselves up above this life and truly understand and behold through the eyes of faith, the hope of glory. And God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And how transformative this would be. It would purge the heart of sin. 1 John 3, 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I'm not saying it's the only reason. I will say, however, it is a chief reason. This explains why sin has such power over many of us. This right here explains why sin has so much power over us. Is simply because when it comes to the hope of glory, what's coming, we're sleeping. Very sleepy. Very sleepy. And how we need to awaken ourselves from our current slumber. And understand what it is that is coming. Who it is that we will be in the Lord Jesus. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. Oh, secondly, it would sever the heart from the world. Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship Is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Here's our problem. You take the light of a candle over here, and you take the light of the sun, and you compare the two. There is no comparison. The light of a candle insignificant in comparison to the light of the sun. The things of this world incomparable when it comes to the things of eternity. And yet how often we find ourselves so firmly rooted in the now. And how a vision of the glory that is coming would loosen, quickly loosen our hold on worldly things. So many things that consume us. Oh, thirdly, it would encourage diligence. Philippians 3, verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How many of us struggle with apathy? Let me just speak for a moment to some of our young people. How many of our young people struggle with apathy? Complete indifference. What's the point? You want a point, look ahead. You want to get moving? You want some motivation? You want some impetus? You want to infuse this seemingly insignificant life with eternal meaning and significance? Behold the hope of glory. Behold a coming Savior. And look and expect that upward call how it would cure our hearts of that apathy which plagues us far too often. Fourthly, it would encourage obedience. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and Glory. And so if we understand glorification, if we fully understand what is coming, how that will compel us to obey at present, how that will remind us that we are set on earth as Christians for a purpose to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into light, how we have been called and appointed to reflect his likeness, his goodness and his holiness in a fallen world. Fifthly it would encourage sincerity. Colossians three twenty four Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Paul directed those comments to whom? Slaves. That's something. Talk about mundane. Talk about an oppressive situation. Talk about a calling with very few career options or options for advancement. Talk about a bare subsistence existence and living. And yet in the light of eternity... When we perform the most mundane, seemingly trivial, seemingly insignificant tasks in life. We perform them and we do them as unto God. They are infused with unbelievable significance. And how this should compel us to sincerity. To serve the Lord. Not serving others by way as as eye-pleasers. But servants of the Lord. And sixthly and finally. And it brings us full circle to Paul's main intent in this passage. This future hope glorification. It supports in times of trouble. It is the third help to those who are suffering. Again, hear the words of the Apostle Paul out of Romans 8.18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing With the glory that is to be revealed to us. A hope of glory. The power of prayer. The sovereignty of God culminating in glorification. In these, by the Spirit of God, we find strength for the soul. In these, we find what? That which will strengthen our hope. Strengthen our faith. Strengthen our love. As we find ourselves journeying here seeking and striving to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, our God in heaven. We pray now for the application of your word by your spirit. We pray that you would aid us, help us in taking to heart all that we have heard this day. May we uh, think through these things. May your word not fall as it fell in that parable upon the unprepared soil, the untilled soil, the pathway where the birds snatched it up and took it away. We pray that we might not be careless in our hearing, allowing these truths to simply, simply enter in through one ear and out the other, but that we might consider these things, contemplate these things by your Spirit, seek and strive to impress them upon our hearts. We ask your help in this regard. We pray for any who is here this day struggling, any of your children, finding himself, herself in the midst of suffering with no light seemingly at the end of the tunnel. We pray that they might derive great encouragement from your word as they look to you, as they fix their gaze upon you, who you are, and what you are doing in history. And for those unbelievers in our midst, we do pray, our Father, that you might bring conviction this day. Pray that you would uh, convince them, impress upon them that they have no hope outside of Christ. That all things do not work for their good. On the contrary, all things are working for their evil. May this humble them in the dust before you. May they be brought to the conviction for their sin. And may they see that there is salvation in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask it. Amen.